sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Hello, and welcome to my study. Please come in and have a seat. All the books around you here are those used to research our show, and the individual to my right, along with the managing domestic duties, serves as our reader for any passages that will be directly quoted from these sources. Her name is Mrs. Carswell. Hello. As uh, this is another holiday show, our Valentine show, we have another little surprise from Mrs. Carswell and her bees. Like a Halloween show. Uh, for any new listeners who may not know, Mrs. Carswell keeps an apiary here on the premises and comes from a long line of beekeepers. Going back generations. Uh, so I, I guess I'll just hand it over to you then, since you're all set up and ready for show and tell. Okay. So... Oh, you... uh, yes, yes. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Bone and Sickle presents Carswell's Amazing Musical Bees. And tonight's number, Won't You Be My Valentine? So, uh, this is a song from a record I had as a child, uh, actually a hand-me-down from Uncle Ebert from the 1960s called... Children's Holiday. Luckily, it was still in the attic back home. I called Mother to have her send it out, and at first I didn't think that she was going to do it because anything involving Uncle Ebert and performing bees, she just never liked any of it. It's not so much about him. I think she's just trying to protect me. Uh, we're, we're getting a little off track. Um, do you want to just play the song? Uh, the record, I mean. So oh, yes. people can hear the melody you're going to have the uh, bees perform. Of course. It's by the McGuire sisters, like the Andrews sisters. They were discovered by Arthur Godfrey. They were on his radio show. One of them, I forget which, had a baby with spina bifida. Oh. Luckily, Mr. Ridenour happened to have a portable record player. So here's the song. There's a little intro. Won't you be my Valentine? Valentine, Valentine. Uh, you don't want to play more? Well, that's the part they sing, just the won't you be my Valentine part. Oh. It's very hard training bees. It would be unrealistic to attempt the whole song. Uh, all right. I suppose I should explain that I have not heard the performance myself. We decided to premiere the recording in the segment with you, our listeners, to make it more of an event. We don't have the bees here in the study. It's a recording. Yes. Uh, doing it live would have put additional pressures on Mrs. Carswell, so I lent her an old reel-to-reel -reel so she could capture her best takes for a playback 
we used reel-to-reel -reel to avoid any accusations of digital tampering. And luckily, you pointed out the variable speed control because the original was much too fast for the bees to keep up. So we recorded a slow version, like this. We actually have two tape recorders here in the library just for the demonstration. Uh, maybe should turn that on. I used this toy xylophone during training for the toes. Oh, Glockenspiel, actually. The xylophones have wooden keys, not metal. Okay. So, uh, as I was saying, one of these two recorders is prepared with Mrs. Carswell's best take of the musical bees which I guess we should go ahead and play, unless you have anything you want to say No, first. no, I can play it now. I just want to point out that this is very hard work, and I didn't have much time. So, without further ado, Carswell's Amazing Musical Bees perform Won't You Be My Valentine? Part of it. Part the first of notes. Part of Won't You Be My Valentine. Well, you heard it, right? Of course, yes, but you should play it again. It's just the first part. Well, I, I do hear many of the notes. One more time since we built it up so much. Maybe too much, you think? Maybe what? we built it up too much. Why do you say that? It's not very good. Well, that's not true. It's not good. It's just sad. It's sad, and you can say so. What? The recording, the song, everything! This is no way to spend Valentine's Day with children's records and xylophones. Adults take each other out for dinner. way out here in this house. Why should I even try? And I will not do sexting. Well, the, the song turned out well. Oh. Okay. Uh, I think we'll skip the cupcakes. Uh, so, uh, episode 83... Dead Lovers' Hearts. I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, examines the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started the show as a way to further explore this area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. 
Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors who receive monthly rewards, including short bonus episodes. I'll have more on Patreon at the end of our show. On August 14, 1882, a small group gathered on a beach in northern Tuscany to witness the improvised cremation of a 29-year-old poet whose heart is the centerpiece of the first of our two explorations of the Romantic. The burning body belonged to a central figure in English literary history, though today a particular work by his wife, the novel Frankenstein, is better known. Mary Shelley kept as a treasured relic the heart, the physical heart, of her husband, Percy Bysshe Shelley, until the day she died. Shelley was a poet and leading light of Romanticism, a 19th century movement that at times concerned itself with affairs between lovers, but this as an aspect of a wider exploration of themes like individualism, subjectivity, the ideal, the unobtainable, nature and what lies behind it, the agrarian life, the primitive, the other, and the state of melancholy often marks such pursuits. Our second topic is rooted in the chivalric romances of the Middle Ages, uh, tales of knights and their ladies that often included courtships, as these were typically composed in Old French, Anglo-Norman, or Occitan, that is, in Romance or Latin-based languages, the French word roman was used to describe them, hence uh, romance in English. By the time Shelley was born, the word romantic had come to describe such novels characterized by uh, passion, adventure, and sometimes amorous pursuits. The cremation we're discussing happens somewhere near the middle of our story, but we'll back up a bit now to look at the circumstances around Shelley's death. In 1818, the Shelleys traveled to Italy, partly in advice of Percy's doctors, but also to evade creditors. However, they hardly escaped their troubles. In Venice, their infant daughter Clara died of dysentery, and in Rome, they lost their three-year-old William to malaria. By the summer of 1822, when Shelley died, they'd settled into a remote seaside residence, which they dubbed Villemani, about uh, 40 miles north of Pisa on the Bay of Spezia. Mary was less enthusiastic about the place than Percy, and it did not come as good news when she discovered that year that she was again pregnant after having already lost a child born prematurely in 1815. There were also tensions around another resident of Villemani, Jane Williams, with whom Percy had developed an intense friendship. Jane's husband, Edward, would also 
figure prominently into the poet's final hours. June, the month before Shelley's death, brought further tragedy and omens. To begin with, Mary lost the child she'd been carrying through miscarriage and experienced life-threatening blood loss in the process. While Percy provided aid that did save her life, he was far less supportive in other ways. A few days later, he wrote to a friend describing deadened feelings for his wife and heightened feelings for Jane. The letter also contained a request for help obtaining a lethal dose of prussic acid, if not for an imminent suicide, as... A comfort to hold in my possession that golden key to the chamber of perpetual rest. And then there were the visions. Well, throughout his life, Percy had experienced something he called... Waking dreams. These intensified during those summer months. Two are described in the 1847 volume, The Life of Percy Bysshe Shelley, by Thomas Medwin, a cousin of the poet and a member of his literary circle in Italy. Shelley, one night, alarmed all the house with loud and piercing cries. The Williamses rushed out of their rooms, and Mrs. Shelley, who had miscarried a few days before, got at the same time as far as a door and fainted. They found Shelley in the salon with his eyes wide open and gazing on vacantly with a horror, as though he saw some spectre. He was in a deep trance, a sort of somnambulism. On waking him, he related to them that he had had a vision. He thought that a figure wrapped in a mantle came to his bedside and beckoned him. He got up and followed. And when, in the drawing room, the phantom lifted up the hood of his cloak and said, Are you satisfied? And vanished. There are also references to Shelley seeing or seeing in visions, Jane and Edward Williams shambling about the house as bloody corpses, as well as a waking dream in which his doppelganger strangles Mary. Somewhat earlier, he experienced another of these uh, waking dreams, which Mary described in her journal entry of May 6. After tea, walking with Shelley on the terrace and observing the effect of moonlight on the waters, he complained of being unusually nervous, and stopping short, he grasped me violently by the arm and stared steadfastly on the white surf that broke upon the beach under our feet. Observing him sensibly affected, I demanded of him if he were in pain, but he only answered by saying, There it is! Again! There! He recovered after some time and declared that he saw as plainly as he then saw me a naked child rise from the sea and clap its hands as in joy, smiling at him. In fact, it was the waters of the Ligurian Sea, or the Bay of Spezia, that would soon claim Shelley's life. The remoteness of Bilimani and the location directly on the waterfront made transportation by boat essential. 
Shelley had little previous experience with sailing, but acquired some knowledge from a former Navy volunteer, novelist, and friend of both Shelley and Lord Byron, Edward John Trelawney. Byron had taken up residence not far away in Pisa, occupying himself, among other things, with the launch of a new literary journal, The Liberal, which was a collaboration with Shelley. On July 8th, Percy was returning home by boat from a meeting with Byron. Accompanying him was a teenage boat hand, Charles Vivian, and Jane's husband, William. Sadly, however, the boat was less than seaworthy, said to have been difficult to handle with an overlarge mast. What's more, a storm had been reported, rolling into the bay just as the party departed. Mary became increasingly anxious as day after day her husband failed to return. Then on July 13th, word came that wreckage from Shelley's boat had washed ashore. On the 19th, the poet's body and those of his two companions were discovered on the beach of Via Reggio. Shelley was only 29 years old at the time of his drowning. Trelawney, who would later arrange for Byron's funeral, describes identifying the bodies which were badly decomposed or mutilated by sea life during their 10 days in the waters. He provides those gruesome details in his 1858 memoir, Recollections of the Last Days of Shelley and Byron. The face and hands and parts of the body not protected by the dress were fleshless. The tall slight figure, the jacket, the volume of Sophocles in one pocket, and Keats's poems in the other doubled back as if the reader in the act of reading had hastily thrust it away, were all too familiar to me to leave a doubt on my mind that this mutilated corpse was any other than Shelley's. Thanks to local quarantine law in effect, the corpses needed to be buried on the beach where they were found can only be transported home for burial if first reduced to ash. Though back in England, cremation was still considered utterly barbaric for at least another half century, Trelawney recognized this option as one well suited to Shelley's love of the Greeks and their customs, and set about ordering the fabrication of what he calls an iron machine. That is, an improvised oven to take care of the ugly business. The first body to be disinterred for cremation was that of Edward Williams. We'll uh, hear a lengthier quote on this from Trelawney, certainly because it's vividly ghoulish, but also because it provides some perspective on Byron's personality. Because of the quarantine mentioned, there were local health workers there supervising and doing the digging. As they reach the body, Trelawney spies what he thinks is a handkerchief belonging to Williams. I grubbed this out with a stick, for we were not allowed to touch anything with our hands. Then some shreds of linen were met with, and a boot with the bone of the leg and the foot in it. On the removal of a layer of brushwood, all that now remained of my lost friend was exposed. A shapeless mass of bones and flesh, the limbs separated from the trunk on being touched. Is that a human body? exclaimed Byron. Why, it's more like the carcass of a sheep or 
any other animal than a man. This is a satire on our pride and folly. I pointed to the letters, E-E-W, on the black silk handkerchief. Byron, looking on, muttered, The entrails of a worm hold together longer than the potter's clay of which man is made. I had a boot of Williams's with me. It exactly corresponded with the one in the grave. The remains were removed piecemeal into the furnace. Don't repeat this with me, said Byron. Let my carcass rot where it falls. Then comes Shelley, and here Trelawney makes a bit more of an effort to dignify the process. The lonely and grand scenery that surrounded us so exactly harmonized with Shelley's genius that I could imagine his spirit soaring over us. As I thought of the delight Shelley felt in such scenes of loneliness and grandeur whilst living, I felt we were no better than a herd of wolves or a pack of wild dogs in tearing out his battered and naked body from the pure yellow sand that lay so lightly over it. Even Byron was silent and thoughtful. We were startled and drawn together by a dull, hollow sound that followed the blow of a mattock. The iron had struck a skull, and the body was soon recovered. Lime had been strewn on it. This, or decomposition, had the effect of staining it of a dark and ghastly indigo color. Byron asked me to preserve it, the skull for him, but remembering that he had formerly used one as a drinking cup, I was determined Shelley's should not be so profaned. On August 14th, after William's body had been successfully reduced to ash the previous day, Shelley was cremated. Those mentioned being present are Trelawney, Byron, and the poet and publisher Lee Hunt, whom Shelley had encouraged to come to Italy for his health and as a collaborator on The Liberal. In imitation of the ancient Greeks, wine was ceremoniously poured over the poet's corpse, as well as oil and salt, which Trelawney says, Made the yellow flames glisten and quiver. The heat from the sun and fire was so intense and the atmosphere was tremulous and wavy. The corpse fell open and the heart was laid bare. The frontal bone of the skull where it had been struck with the mattock fell off and as the back of the head rested on the red hot bottom bars of the furnace, the brains literally seethed, bubbled and boiled as in a cauldron for a very long time. The fire was so fierce as to produce a white heat on the iron and to reduce its contents to grey ashes. The only portions that were not consumed were some fragments of bones, the jaw and the skull. But what surprised us all was that the heart remained entire. In snatching this relic from the fiery furnace, my hand was burnt, and had anyone seen me do the act, I should have been put into quarantine. Ah, uh, defying quarantine since 1822. Thus, it turns out, this relic snatched from the flames was not immediately delivered to Mary. Lee Hunt, as was later revealed in a letter to the poet's wife, had... Begged it at the funeral pyre. From Trelawney, presumably, because he had served as the de facto master of ceremonies. 
The letter was part of an exchange in which both Mary and, more surprisingly, Lee assert their rights of ownership. Hunt, whose essays would later help to build up the mythology of Shelley, believed he shared a special spiritual bond with the poet and at first refused to relinquish the heart, declaring, No ordinary appearance of rights, even yours, can affect me. Eventually, however, Byron, whose contributions to the liberal were necessary to its survival, prevailed upon Hunt to relinquish the artifact. And so, as mentioned at the start of our show, Mary kept her husband's heart till her dying day. Or uh, something at least resembling a heart, as some of you may have been wondering, there were questions about the heart surviving the process. An 1885 article in the New York Times cast doubt on the relic's authenticity after an earlier article, also skeptical, appeared in the uh, London Athenaeum. Though no accusations of conscious deception were raised, an expert of some sort quoted in the Athenaeum pointed out that the heart, being hollow, stood little chance of surviving intact, and suggested it said that the liver, a particularly solid organ, and one in this case soaked for over a week in seawater, might have survived and been mistaken for Shelley's heart. And thankfully, for the sake of romantics everywhere, a contributor to the Journal of History of Medicine and Allied Sciences, by the name of Arthur Norman, took issue with all this skepticism in an article written in 1955. Because Shelley suffered from tuberculosis, he suggests, his heart may have been calcified. And so, the poet's heart, that epitome of romanticism, might have indeed survived the flames, albeit as a heart of stone. Somewhat metaphorically, at least. Now, uh, on to those tales with uh, roots in the old chivalric romances. We'll have two related tales inspired by those, taken from The Decameron by Giovanni Boccaccio. I've already mentioned this book, I believe, in one of the plague episodes, as the collection of stories, according to Boccaccio's framing device, is supposed to represent those uh, told by a group of ten persons fleeing Florence because of the Black Death. We also, uh, coincidentally, heard one of the stories in our last Valentine's show, The Lover's Head, which you might want to check out. Completed in 1353, the book's name, as you may remember, is a Greek coinage, meaning ten days, referring to the period over which the tales are shared, a hundred of them all told, as they say. The uh, story in question is the ninth tale of the fourth day. It concerns an actual historic personage from the end of the 12th century, a uh, minstrel responsible for some of those uh, chivalric tales I've been talking about, Guilhemme de Cabestagne. His home, Cabestagne, is a region in the Pyrenees on France's southern border with Spain. The story told, however, is a fiction that comprised part of the uh, poet's vita, or biography, that was sometimes attached to collections of his ballads, not something he wrote himself. Little is known of the actual de Cabestagne other than his poetry, but in this tale he is a knight. The other character in the story is also named Guillaume, Sir Guillaume de Roussillon, another kingdom adjacent to Cabestagne. 
he's also the best friend of the Cabestania, or Cabestania as we'll call him. And unfortunately, he is also hopelessly in love with Roussillon's wife. She returns his overtures, and they are soon engaged in an affair discovered by Roussillon, which is where the story gets interesting. As an excuse to ambush Capistania, Roussillon invites him to join him on a journey to a tournament. When his victim meets him on the road, Roussillon leapt forth, lance in hand, and fell upon him, exclaiming, Thou art a dead man! And the words were no sooner spoken than the lance was through Capistani's breast. Roussillon dismounted, opened Capistani's breast with a knife, and took out the heart with his own hands and gave it to one of his servants to carry. Returning from his supposed trip to the tournament, he's greeted by his wife, who is more than a little surprised not to see him accompanied by his dear friend. Roussillon assures her that Cabestagne will join them for dinner the next day, which, in a sense, he does. The knight then delivers the slain man's heart to his cook, saying, Here is a boar's heart. Take it and make it thereof the daintiest and most delicious dish thou canst. And when I am set at table, serve it in a silver dish. The next day, a ragout prepared from the heart is laid on the table one which the lady finds delicious, eating all that's served. Roussillon comments on her appetite for the dish, and his wife confirms that she has indeed enjoyed it greatly. So help me God, returned the knight. I believe that you did. Tis no wonder that you should enjoy that dead which living you enjoyed more than aught else in the world. For a while the lady was silent. Then, how say you, said she, what is this you have caused me to eat? That which you have eaten, replied the knight, was the heart of Sir Guillaume de Cabestagne, whom you, disloyal woman that you are, did so much love. She dramatically declares that it was she who should have been put to death rather than the knight. So saying, she started to her feet, and stepping back to a window that was behind her without a moment's hesitation, let herself drop backwards therefrom. The window was at a great height from the ground, so that the lady was not only killed by the fall, but reduced to pieces. Fearing vengeance from the people of the village, so Roussillon flies off to parts unknown, people of the region are indeed horrified at what's transpired and bear the bodies of the two lovers to the church where they are laid forever together in a tomb inscribed with the details of this tragic tale. Our second tale for the Decameron shares some themes and is also told on the fourth day, the first tale of a day dedicated to unhappy loves. It involves Tancredi, Prince of Salerno, and his beautiful daughter, Gismonda. Though it pains him to let her go, when the time comes for her to marry, he eventually finds an adequate suitor in the Duke of Capua. But the Duke dies shortly after they are wed, and Gismonda returns to the palace where he hopes that she will remain. 
But Gismonde is lonely and eventually sets her eye on her father's valet, Guiscardo. He appears to be receptive, and so one day she invites him to a secret rendezvous via a letter concealed in a hollow reed. As it happens, there is a long-forgotten grotto connected to her bedroom by a long-sealed ancient door. Gismonde manages to unseal the door and relays to Guiscardo how he might lower himself on a rope into the love chamber without passing the palace guards. Trysts in the cave become a regular affair, and the couple becomes a bit sloppy about security. One day, Gismonda allows Guiscardo through the door into her bedroom, where they continue their lovemaking. Unfortunately, this gets a bit awkward as it happens to be a day on which Tancredi visits the daughter's chambers to chat with her. And not finding her there, he makes himself comfortable on a couch behind a curtain and falls asleep. At least until the couple returns from the grotto and he's awakened by this sort of sounds no father ever wants to hear. Prince Tancredi then slips away to plot an appropriate response later returning to his daughter to confront her individually. Gismondo's response can hardly be hoped for. She begins with a particularly blunt defense. Not only am I a creature of flesh and blood, but my life is not so far spent that I am still young and thus doubly fraught with fleshy appetite. There's also the matter of the particular lover chosen. While Guiscardo has served the prince as an excellent valet and earned his goodwill, he's still a servant and low-born. Gismonda brushes this all aside, saying, Pass in review all thy nobles, weigh their merits, their manners and bearing, and then compare Guiscardo's qualities with theirs. If thou wilt judge without prejudice, Thou wilt pronounce him noble in the highest degree, and thy nobles, one and all, churls. Seeing that her father is unmoved and fearing the worst for her lover, she insists that should Guiscardo be put to death, she too should receive the same sentence. Even as they speak, her lover waits in prison, but not for long. Tancredi bade the two men that had charge of Guiscardo to strangle him noiselessly that same night, take the heart out of the body, and send it to him. The men did his bidding, and on the morrow the prince had a large and beautiful cup of gold brought to him, and having put Guiscardo's heart therein, set it by the hand of one of his most trusted servants to his daughter, charging the servant to say as he gave it to her, Thy father sends thee this, to give thee joy of that which thou lovest best. And when the servant appeared with the prince's present and message, she took the cup unflinchingly, and having lifted the lid and seen the heart, and apprehended the meaning of his words, and that the heart was beyond a doubt Guiscardo's, she raised her head, and looking straight at the servant, said, a tomb less honorable than of gold would ill befit a heart such as this. Here has my father done wisely. When Tancredi's servant retreats, however, she lets loose a... Flood of tears which gushed from her eyes while times without number. She kissed the dead heart, 
Gismonda has prepared to join her lover in death, previously having concocted a poison, which she then... Emptied it into the cup where lay the heart bathed in her tears. Then, no wise afraid, she set her mouth to the cup and drained it dry. When word reaches Tancredi that his daughter has poisoned herself, he rushes to her chambers, but finds her stretched on her bed, her lifeless fingers wrapping the chalice, holding Guiscardo's heart. Tancredi, tardily repentant of his harshness, mourned not a little, as did also all the folk of Salerno, and had honorably interred the two lovers side by side in the same tomb. By 1556, the Decameron had appeared in English translation, and the story of Gismonda and Guiscardo was soon adapted for the Elizabethan stage, and then a second time in the mid-1700s. As it circulated, its themes seemed to have inspired a ballad, one particularly found in Scotland, uh, going by the name Lady Diamond or Lady Dizey, sometimes even Robin the Kitchy Boy, uh, that is Scottish for Kitchen Boy the imperiled lover in this version of the story. The high-born lady in the ballad is the daughter not of a prince, but of a king, who is none too pleased to find that his kitchen servant has impregnated his daughter. Well, you know the consequences for this. In most versions, if the death is described at all, he's smothered quietly between two feather beds. And here's how the rest plays out in a version sung by Georgia Lewis. They've torn his heart from out his breast and set in a cup of cold. They've taken it to their fair lady who'd been both stout and bold. She's taken the cup from and set it at a bed. She's washed it with her flowing tears. Next morning she was dead. And now, one last variation on the Eaton Heart theme, one that's believed to be the oldest and certainly the most gruesome. It's uh, believed to have been written by the Burgundian French author Renaud de Boge, probably around the year 1200. It's the lay or ballad of Ignore, a ladies' man, a knight of lower rank, who lives near the Chateau de Rio, home to 12 prominent land-holding knights and their ladies. One day, these twelve ladies are gathered in a garden where they decide to play a game. Each has boasted of visits from an illicit lover, and in order to learn who has the best of these, one of their number is appointed as a 
priests, to whom the others must confess their affairs and the qualities of the man who visits them. Feigning guilt over what she is about to confess, one of the ladies approaches the appointed priest, beating her breast with her right hand, to which the mock priest mockingly replies, Sweet sister, beat instead your bum, which is the source of the sins with which your body is tainted. But what's launched in a spirit of naughty fun soon devolves into jealous rage and despair, as each lady eventually names the same very busy lover, that is, Ignore. Rather than fight each other, however, the twelve unite in their anger against the scoundrel and hatch plans for another meeting during which they will slash Ignore to death. But when he arrives at the appointed place, Ignore is uh, quick with his flattery, smooth talk, saying, If I were to die at such fair hands, I should be a martyr among the saints. Sadly, this more or less works, though the ladies agree that Ignore will only be allowed to keep one of their number as a lover, and this turns out to be the woman running the game, the priest, so to speak. But there's a problem here, at least for Ignore. Rather than uh, varying his route to 12 different bedchambers, he's now tracing and retracing a single path, which arouses more suspicion. The knight, whose lady is receiving these visits, points a spy, and Ignore is apprehended. While in prison, it comes out that the scoundrel has not only been visiting this lady, but all 12 wives of the knights in the region. And though you will certainly guess at least part of the vengeance streamed up by the offended knight, it does go a little further than that. This plan recognizes not just the affections of the heart, but more specifically physical pleasures. Here's what's described. In four days' time, let us remove from the vassal his lowest member down below, the delights of which used to please them, and have it made into a meal with the heart put into it as well. We will make twelve bowls out of all this and trick them into eating it, for we could not take any better revenge on them. Meanwhile, however, the ladies are begging to know Ignore's fate, even refusing to eat until they learn what's been done with their lover. It's hinted that this will be revealed at a feast to which they are invited, and despite their intended fast, the gathered knights are so enthusiastic in their praise of the dish served that the ladies give in and give it a try, eventually gobbling up every last morsel. When the mystery meat is revealed in the story, there's no jumping out of windows. The response is more perverse. They all made a vow to God that they would never eat again and would never again have a meal of such quality. And they are true to their fast, spending the remaining days composing laments for their dead lover until they all finally waste away. So we've spent a lot of time examining stories that treat the heart as the seat of everything romantic. So I'd like to end with the one last story for those who regard the brain as the place where love is born and cultivated. 
It's a modern story of two Russian lovers from the town of Volde in the northeast of the country, Dmitry Luchin and Olga Budunova. It was a story reported by a number of international news sources back in March of 2018. And yes, it does involve cannibalism. Mr. Luchin, who was 21 at the time, uh, Olga was 45, a, a May-December relationship, Luchin had become obsessed with the topic of cannibalistic serial killers, and interest he wished to share, in a way, with Olga. So he invited her over for dinner, let's say. It was International Women's Day, after all, which actually is a big deal in Russia, and a time when women could and should expect to be celebrated. Unfortunately, the celebration Luchin had in mind began when he broke a wine bottle over Budnova's head and, and then stabbed her to death. What happened after that is a little harder to clarify. Um, Russian policing protocols engage a civilian to uh, witness police investigation of a crime scene to uh, ensure that everything is photographed or documented as found, not tampered with. So uh, some of the additional details we have are attributed to that person, a neighbor by the name of Alexandra Dedova, who presumably may have not only observed the crime scene, but overheard conversation at the scene between uh, police and the suspect. Uh, in any case, from uh, the uh, East to West Russian news service. Dedova said, next, he cut out her stomach and chopped off her ears. One he put into her mouth, the other into the cat's bowl. He also supposedly drank a bit of Budanova's blood and used some to paint a pentagram on the wall. He wanted to summon the devil, Dedova said. He waited for five minutes, but the devil did not appear. That the devil did not appear seems to be more of a guess on Dedova's part, but perhaps she did overhear Lucian's commentary on the evening, which could have included something about the devil's five-minute deadline. In any case, what is cleared, something quoted in the police report, is that Luchin smashed open Budanova's skull, cut out some pieces, cooked and ate them, and was not disappointed. I liked the taste of her brain, he told police. Having already confessed to the murder, Luchin appeared in court on November 21st for sentencing, which ended up being 19 years. And uh, all the sources I find in the story, including a Newsweek article, uh, report that Luchin made a final court statement in verse. As I don't have court transcripts, I have taken the liberty of composing my own version of the verse, as I imagine it, and, and we'll close the show with that. No music. Before you judge me for my crime, I offer you this little rhyme. Consider, please, my deep contrition for this crime and its commission. I will not lie, her skull I cracked. How else could one the brain extract? And once pulled out, it seemed a waste, not to have a little taste. And even though you think me awful, I did consider what was lawful, to eat it cooked or eat it raw. 
both are equal to the law. So, with my conscience duly eased, I chose to fry it as I pleased. But now I see how I was blinded. So please be lenient and broad-minded. Such actions nevermore I'll take, for now I realize my mistake. The brain I chose to fry in oil would have been much better broiled. I do hope we brought you a bit of Valentine cheer in our show, and that if you enjoyed it, you might have the opportunity to leave a review somewhere. Those do help us. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, these episodes keep coming out because of the support of our lovely Patreon subscribers. When you donate, you're contributing toward the more than 100 hours I end up putting into each of these shows. Pledge commitments begin at $1 and can be edited at any time. Those subscribing at the $4 level or higher receive a short extra episode, a reading from something in our library, given the bone and sickle soundscape treatment, of course. Other rewards include access to our Patreon blog, downloads of the show soundscapes heard under the narration, show scripts, my Krampus book, the bone and sickle candle, and unique hand-packed mystery kits. New patrons get immediate access to all the rewards made available online, the entire back catalog all the way back to 2018. And I'd like to thank those who have recently signed up. Uh, Our new supporters include Carl Parnell, Paxton Choate Deeds, the English pronunciation on that, I hope that's right, and uh, Clayton Hayes and uh, Claire McGuire for uh, upping her pledge to the annual level, which actually gives you a bit of a month-to-month discount. Bone and Sickle is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening. Happy Valentine's Day.